we are wrapping up our summer series, Christ Encounters. We started off by looking at the ones that were the called and the disciples that Jesus called to himself. And when we looked at those that all of society and culture considered the sinners. And following that, we looked at the encounters that the rich and the religious had with Jesus. And then most recently, we've been focusing in on the broken. And through all these categories of encounters that people had one-on-one, personal, unforgettable encounters, we've seen that through it all, no matter who he encountered, Jesus was the same. And the same is true for us. And I hope and pray you have encountered the living Jesus and that you have been changed by it. As we wrap up the series today, we're going to look at someone that we've already focused in on and and saw through our very first focus on the encounters, and that's Peter, Simon Peter. We started off the series by looking at his call to Jesus along with his brother Andrew, who brought him to Jesus. Andrew was always bringing people, and he brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus had that very important encounter with with Peter, which caused Peter to leave his only known profession that he had up to that point, left the net, left the fishing boats, and became a fisher of men. So we're coming full circle to what was true of Peter and his relationship with Jesus as we finish by looking at him again. We're going to be in John chapter 21. We're going to be focusing in on verses 15 through 17. But before we get into that and look at this final encounter, I have a question for you. And it will seem unrelated, but I promise you it's not. Okay, we'll get there. I want to hear, I want you to shout out to me your favorite superhero. Who's your favorite superhero? Let me hear Spider-Man? Okay. Superman? You said Superman? Iron Man? Captain America? All right. No Batman fans? Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, who would say, but this is a show of hand thing, who would say, yeah, I'd have to say Superman's my favorite? Let me just, let me see your hands. Superman, Superman, all right. Superman, okay. Most, most people like Superman above all the other superheroes. And I have a problem with that. Because, I mean, that's just too easy. I mean, come on. There, there's just about nothing that can affect the guy. I mean, you know, he has heat vision. Uh, you throw a, uh, an entire city at him. It wouldn't phase him. He'd just dust the stuff off and then go about his day. Uh, I mean, he goes through walls. He can reverse the axis of the earth. I mean, it's just too easy. He's pretty much unbreakable, right? Pretty much unbreakable, except for that one little thing, that green rock, kryptonite. But other than that, I mean, he, he's pretty much invincible, invulnerable, and uh, that to me is just a little bit like cheating. I don't know. It's just too easy, too easy. Unfortunately... A lot of Christians have this idea that when you become a follower of Christ, you become unbreakable. And unfortunately, there's an entire philosophy and 
a school of thought, a segment of, of thinking within the church that really promotes that kind of thinking. That once you become a Christian, once you're in Christ, there's nothing that can touch you. I mean, it's just smooth sailing, and, and you don't have to wait for the streets of gold up there because it's just like you're walking on a street of gold wherever you go. Everything's great. You know, there's nothing that can touch you. You have authority over everything. You just speak your authority over any obstacle, and it just goes away. And you can resist getting sick, and you can resist bad finances, and you can resist stress, and it just bounces off you like bullets bouncing off a of Superman. I mean, there's this kind of undercurrent within the body of Christ that promotes that. And, and unfortunately, that's just very, very common and prevailing among followers of Christ. To be in Christ and to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ means that in some way you're just now magically unbreakable. But, but that's just not the case at all. Not so in any way. Following Jesus doesn't make you unbreakable. We just need to establish that. Following Jesus doesn't make you unbreakable. And a lot of you can attest to that. I mean, what you've gone through, not just over your life in the sense of looking way back over the years of your life decades ago, although that's probably true as well, but I mean, I'm saying recently, what some of you have dealt with this last month, last couple months, six months, the last year, last two years, we've gone through some things together here. You've gone through some things, hard things. You said, I'll see you later to loved ones that you saw every single day. You're not unbreakable to that. I mean, if I were to ask you, and, and I'm, not, I'm not going to ask for this or for a response, but if I were to ask you, you know, one-on-one, how are you really doing? Don't, don't give me the padded answers. How are you really doing? Many of you, if you were completely honest and open, you would say something like, I feel broken. This tragedy, this saying goodbye to that loved one, this set of circumstances that have come my way that I didn't see coming, I feel like it's broken me or it's breaking me. I just feel broken. And that's okay to feel that way. It really is. It's okay. God knew you were going to feel that way. God knows you're feeling that way. And God isn't taken off guard or taken by surprise by that because actually that was promised that that would happen. That you'd feel that way, that the world around you, that life as we know it here in this fallen state and under the weight of the curse of sin on this world, the promise was that we would actually encounter things that would make us feel broken, make us feel or experience brokenness. Feeling broken and brokenness is actually what it means to be a human being this side of eternity. So following Jesus doesn't make you unbreakable, and that was never promised by Jesus. So whenever you hear that that was promised, or, or that God promises that, or the Word promises, it's not the true Word, it's not the true God, and it's not the true Gospel. Because that was never the promise. 
Following Jesus doesn't make you unbreakable. But, but, following Jesus makes restoration available. Following Jesus makes restoration available. You're never going to have the promise that you won't ever encounter something that does make you feel broken or it makes you experience brokenness. But if you're in Christ, Christian, you have the promise that in Him, restoration is always available. No matter how broken you might feel or how broken you might be, restoration is always available through Jesus. And Peter, Simon Peter, man, you've just got to love Peter. (laughs) Of all the disciples... He's my favorite. I'm sure that's probably true of some of you as well. Man, Peter, he definitely experienced both of those facts. He definitely experienced that following Jesus does not make you unbreakable, but he also experienced that following Jesus makes restoration always, always available. And this is why I like him so much. Peter must have had a foot-shaped mouth. You know? Think of how often he put his foot in it. So he must have had like a sandal-shaped mouth. And man, I resemble that. Matthew 16, 21-23, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to summarize it quickly for all of us. That passage, Matthew 16, records that right after his amazing confession of Jesus as being God, you know, Jesus said, what are people saying about me? And they gave answers. Okay, what do you say about me? And nobody was saying really anything. And then Peter, as he often does, he speaks right up. And he says, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been looking for. And the one that was prophesied and pointed to, you're him. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. For flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. So, I mean, that was a... It was a good job Peter moment. Right after that, Jesus starts saying, now guys, get ready. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm going to rise again. But Peter, he zeroed in on the arrested, tried, and died part. And he said, I don't think so. Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. (laughs) Think again. And so... Jesus says to that arrogance and that berating of Jesus, he says, get behind me, Satan. So, I mean, he goes from, blessed are you, Simon, to get behind me, Satan. I think we resemble that as well, most of the time. At least I do, because, you know, he went on and he said, you don't have in your mind the things of God. You have only the things of of man that you're thinking. You're thinking selfishly. You're thinking self Senderedly, you're thinking about your agenda and your plans, not God's. And unfortunately, yeah, that's where we find ourselves so often. Then shortly after that incident in Matthew 17, 1 through 6, at Jesus' transfiguration, when, when he revealed his true glory, when you know, the, the glory that he had willingly laid aside for his, his time and ministry on earth at his incarnation, doesn't mean he lost it doesn't mean he ceased being God and having all the glory of eternity at his disposal. It just means he concealed it. He didn't use it actively throughout his ministry. But on this one occasion, he was transfigured. He he, he was changed in his his appearance. The, The humanity that he took on gave way to his divinity. 
And so he was showing the divine glory to Peter and James and John. And Peter, oh, God bless him. Peter makes this big mistake. He inserts the foot in the mouth again. And he makes this mistake. He doesn't think before he speaks. And he suggests building tabernacles, plural, of worship for Moses and Elijah, who had appeared with Jesus, alongside Jesus. He says, Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. I propose, let's set up booths, and that's what he meant, tabernacles, worship places, one for you, that was the right thing, and one for Moses and Elijah. Warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson, right? And God the Father actually rebuked Peter. And, I mean, well, that was an incident that I'm sure Peter never forgot, along with the others. This, this is my son, he said, the Father, about Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they're not my one and only son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Focus on him. Glorify him. But none of those failures... None of those failures came close to his failure the night that Jesus was arrested. And that we see the account of in Matthew 26, 69 through 75. And I'm going to read that for you. Matthew 26, 69 tells us this. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, so Jesus has been arrested, left the garden. Peter tried to kill the servant, missed his head, chopped off his ear. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl approached him and said, You were with Jesus, the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 71 says, When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, This man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath, like with a curse. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Think somebody that's from MacDowell County. You know, there's just no missing that. You'll know where they're from. The accent was distinct. Verse 74. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. That would have been the most chilling sound Peter had ever heard or ever would hear again. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And there's no indication up to this point where we're going to look today, that he really ever recovered. So fast forward from that point. Fast forward, Jesus has risen. He has appeared to Peter and the other disciples twice. And this was Peter's third encounter with the risen Savior. And it really is safe to say that Peter still had not recovered at all from his denial of Jesus. And so... This version of Peter that Jesus came to in this third appearance, this was a broken rock. Jesus changed Peter's name to to rock. 
This was a broken rock, not the self-confident, sturdy rock that he had been before Christ's death, that impetuous Peter that we've seen all throughout the Gospels up to this point. This was Peter at his lowest point ever, lowest point of his life. And the way this encounter took place was Jesus providing Peter and the six other disciples with him a miraculous catch of fish after they failed to catch any all night. Peter had gone with the disciples ahead to the shores of Galilee like Jesus told them to do. He said uh, when he predicted the denial of Peter and, and all the others leaving Jesus, he said, After I rise again, though, I will go ahead of you to Galilee, so meet me there. And so this is them doing that. They're going to Galilee, they're waiting around, and Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And the others go with them. So they fish all night long, they don't catch anything. And this this would have been some major deja vu, big time deja vu, considering that that's exactly how Christ's original call for them to follow him took place. We looked at that at the very beginning of the series, that Peter and Andrew and the others had fished all night long, and they came back, and they were getting their nets mended and put up, and Jesus was there speaking, and he got into the boat, and he had Peter put out a little bit, so he had like this instant water auditorium where his sound would carry, his voice would carry, and then he has him go back out catches the fish, and Peter is amazed, and he drops down, and he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Remember all that? Well, this is like identical to that. This was intentional deja vu that Jesus initiated. And this was Jesus bringing them, the disciples, and Peter especially, full circle. So the fish are caught, the boats and the nets are put away, we come to a roaring fire there on the, on the beach, fish ready to eat, and an intimate conversation. And that's where we pick up. John 21, 15 through 17. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, deliberate use of his proper name, Remember, he's a broken man. He's a broken rock. He's not the sturdy rock at this point. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The word love that Jesus used there was agapao. That's that highest supreme love. It's a love that Peter had claimed to have for Jesus. And when, he, when Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you agapao me more than these? This was most likely a reference to Peter's very arrogant response when Jesus predicted that the disciples would all desert him and that Peter specifically would deny that he ever knew him. Peter said, When he heard that, that was right before they left from the upper room, right before they went to the garden and the arrest and all that took place. When Jesus dropped that bomb on them, Peter said, well, even if all of these, pointing to his fellow disciples, if if all of these desert you and leave you, Jesus, I never will. And that's when Jesus looked right at him and said, Peter, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times this night. And Peter said, no, 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 you're wrong, Jesus. I, I would die before I deny you. Jesus, I'm sure, just nodded his head, you know, we'll see. And sure enough, he denied his Lord. And so Jesus here in this moment is referring back most likely to that. He's saying, can you still say that, Peter? You remember you said that you loved me supremely higher than anything else in your life. You loved me more than all these disciples loved me. You loved me to the point where you, would, you said you would die before you would deny me. Do you still feel that way? You still think that's true? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. But Peter did not respond with the same level of love. He didn't use agapao, the highest form, highest level. He responded with phileo. Think Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It, it is a love, and it's a, it's a deep love. It's an affectionate love, but it's not the highest supreme love. That level that there is no level higher. I love you like a brother, Peter was saying. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time, verse 16, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, Jesus is using the form of agape, agapao. Do you love me in the highest, most supreme way, the way I love you, Peter? Do you love me in that way? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. And again, he's using phileo. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. In verse 17, he asked him the third time. You notice something deliberate about that, don't you? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, Jesus used the same word that Peter had been replying with. He came down to Peter's level of love. He said, can you truthfully, do you really say, do you really know, Peter, that you at least love me in that brotherly, affectionate way? Do you really phileo me, Peter? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? No doubt because he went back to those three denials and probably grieved that Jesus had to come down to that level, that Peter's love wasn't where it needed to be, where it should have been, where he thought it was, where Jesus, the level that Jesus was worthy of, of having. He was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love, that I phileo you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. What an intimate conversation, right? What a, what a, just a deep, tender, tender moment between this broken man and the Lord that he had denied and yet did still love. And what Peter experienced in this encounter with Jesus and in this moment within this encounter is what we can and should experience too. And that's this. Jesus meets us where we are 
but he loves us too much to leave us there. Jesus meets us where we are, and that's a really great thing, and it's a really wonderful thing, but he loves us too much to leave us there. A sculptor that works with stone has to continually break and chisel away at the block of marble or or granite that they're working with before it can be a masterpiece. They have to take great chunks at first off of the block because it just comes as this big slab of stone. And, And so they have to work very, very hard to get the outer layers off to the point where they can then start to work on the details, the inner parts, where they can get the small chisel and make the detailed work around that that stone, shaping it and molding it and forming it in the image they want it to be so that it can be a masterpiece. Christian, that's exactly how Jesus works with us. It's exactly how He works with us. He will constantly, lovingly chip away the parts of us that aren't like Him. It's what He does. He chips and and breaks away all those things, all the slab that that is around us that's not like Him, that's not part of His image, that's not part of His likeness. And He does that in a loving way because He knows that only when we look like Him will we be the masterpiece that we were intended to be. And that also means that He has a lot of chiseling to do, right? I mean, if He is chipping away all the things in our lives that aren't like Him, then He has a lot of, a lot of work to do. But He does it. He does it lovingly, and He does it constantly. And listen to this. Everybody listen. Don't miss this. The biggest thing that He works to break us from is our pride. That's the biggest thing that He breaks away from us. Because pride has no place in our heart saved and remade by God's grace. Pride has no place in our heart. Considering all that we are and all that God is, and considering that unless Jesus was the one broken for us, we would remain hopelessly, helplessly, and eternally broken. We we didn't do anything. We didn't bring anything to the table. Pride has no place in our heart. And so the biggest thing that he works to break us from is our pride. And it's also the complete opposite of Christ's character. Totally opposite. I mean, Philippians 2, 6-8, it's all about that. How Jesus, being God, did not consider equality with God, which he had, as something to be grasped onto. But instead, he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a slave. And when he came in human likeness, He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Himself said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. So pride, not only does it have no place in in a heart saved and changed by grace, but it also is in no way Christ's character. It's the total opposite of Him. So the biggest thing He will chip away and break away from us is our pride. Which is another reason that Jesus is constantly working, constantly chipping away, because we are constantly prideful. As soon as one aspect of pride gets dealt with, there's another 
over here that Jesus has to work on. And then when that's done, there's another. I mean, we're just perpetually prideful people. But the good news for all of us is this. Jesus makes messes into masterpieces. Jesus makes messes into masterpieces. And that's really good news because we're all a mess, right? Don't you agree with that? We're all a mess. We're all messed up in a million different ways. Like Peter was. And Peter was a mess. It's one reason we identify so much with him. But because of Jesus and by his restoration of Peter, he didn't have to stay a mess. And he didn't. He didn't. He became that rock that Jesus said he was going to be. And it was a rock that Jesus used as a pillar in the church that he was building through the work and ministry of Peter and all the other apostles. Peter stood up at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he gave this incredible sermon where he pointed to Jesus and the necessity of his sacrifice. And he called Israel to repent, the very ones even that had put Jesus on the cross. He called them to repent. And three thousand people came to Jesus and the church began. So yeah, Jesus can make messes into masterpieces. Peter was an example of that, but guess what? So are you. So are you. If you're in Christ today, he has taken all of your mess and he continues to take all your continued mess and he, he molds it and he shapes it and he chips away at it and he makes it piece by piece, little bit at a time, little here, little there. He makes it, he makes you, he makes me, he makes us into his masterpiece. And one day, one day, my fellow believer, we're going to be with him and there's no mess left at all, and we're going to be able to look back on all of this time here, and we're going to be able to see all of those messes that were transformed and remade into this beautiful image that we stand as there with Him, the likeness of our Savior, and we're going to see that it was all worth it. It was all worth it. And we'll never cease to give Him the glory and the praise for it all. What do we do with that in the meantime? First, we let him do his work. We yield to his chisel. We let him do that work as painful and as exhausting as it is. We let him do it because we need it more desperately than we need air. We let him do his work. And as he's working on us and as he's chipping away, here's the other thing that we need to do with that. We need to be fond of broken people because we too are broken people. And we need to take those broken people and in compassion and in grace and in love and in patience the way Jesus does with us, we need to take them and say, you don't have to stay broken. You don't have to stay in your mess. I'm living proof of that. I'm, I'm being constantly changed from my broken state and my mess and you can have that happen to you too. Come, come and see. Come and see the one that's changing my mess into a masterpiece. That's what we do with what Jesus is doing in us. Have you encountered this Christ? Have you had a personal encounter with the living, reigning Jesus that we have 
looked at and focused on and studied all summer long, have you encountered him for yourself? If not, then today is your day to do that. If you have, then today is your day to continue to let him do his work, to continue to encounter him every moment of every day, new and fresh, and to continue to be changed by him because he's the only one that can. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the encounters that we've been able to see throughout the summer, all the different encounters we've been able to study and zero in on. Thank you for Peter especially and bringing him full circle. Thank you that he didn't stay in his broken state. Thank you that he didn't stay miserable by his denials of your son Jesus. Thank you that instead of raking him over the coals and judging him, Jesus instead gave him grace and mercy and compassion and restoration. Thank you. Thank you that we too can be restored, no matter how broken we might be. Thank you for breaking away and chipping away all that is not like Jesus for loving us enough to do that. And thank you for especially the biggest thing that that is broken away from us by your hand with the chisel in it is our pride. Because that's the thing that has no place in our heart. And it's the thing that is totally opposite of Jesus. And it hinders your work. Hinders your glory on display. So please, as painful as it is, keep Breaking away our pride, I pray, O God. Thank you for working in us, working on us, and thank you for working through us, despite us. It's all in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.